turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Bereshit, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. And um, Father God, we just ask that you'll speak to hearts. Give these folks a good time in your word. We'll thank you for it. In the majesty of Messiah, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. And uh, Genesis 1 and verse 31, uh, a very curious verse. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were uh, the sixth day. I, uh, a couple interesting things we note there. Number one is um, evening comes before morning. And that's the way we always do it in Judaica. Our days start at sundown. Why? Because God starts his day at sundown, evening and morning. And uh, that's the way the day begins. Also, it's curious that God saw that everything he made was good. Now, um, uh, it sounds like, in fact, it's, it's recording, that he waited until everything was accomplished and then looked at it and said, wow, that's pretty good. Now, um, that's an unusual thing to put upon God because... Uh, didn't he know what it was going to look like before he started? I mean, I put together all kinds of stuff for Hanukkah and other birthdays and whatever, and I'm putting together these boxes of stuff and going by instructions and trying to get it together. And I put a bicycle together backwards. I don't know how that's possible, but uh, uh, but I did. And uh, once in a while, things work right, and when the brakes break and the lights light and the horn honks and and the kid doesn't get killed the first time out on it, I'm pretty happy. So, wow, that was pretty good. But uh, I, I had no idea what it was going to look like when I started, and God knew. Uh, you know, I'm not really handy. Uh, Jewish people are notorious for not being very good with our hands. It's jokingly said the only Jewish person who can handle tools is a dentist. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but I'm not very good with my hands. And when I saw it was good, I'm amazed. But when... Uh, uh, God saw, you think he expected it. And our rabbis are very helpful here. They say, never detract from God the ability to appreciate the unfolding events in time, even though he knows the end from the beginning. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So as time evolves and events occur in sequentiality, God can look and say, and enjoy them as they process. That means tonight, I plan on getting on my face before God and praying. I, that's my plan. I allow them to fall asleep in my chair and, 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 and forget to pray. Uh, nobody here is like that, but it has happened in other places where people forget to pray. And if and when I remember to pray, and if you remember to pray, when you do pray, it'll be a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord at that moment. And he knows whether you're going to stay awake or not. Now, I like the idea that God said it was very good. In all the years of Hebrew school, uh, handing in papers and meticulously uh, putting down every uh, dogish um, uh, 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 forte and every dogish lini and every uh, begadka fat letter and, and all my jots and tittles, I would get a check mark that my papers had been acknowledged. A girl next to me is named Marilyn Strassner. I, because of my rage and, and envy, I remember her name. And, uh, and she would always get, frequently get a toll. And on occasion, you get a told me owed. Good, he would say, the professor. And on occasion, very good. God saw it was very good. I never got a very good. 
Once, maybe I got a good, I think I put my, my parents put it into a little uh, um, a picture frame or something. But uh, one good, and she gets very good almost every week. Uh, good and very good. God saw it was very good. Every molecule, every atom, every electron, every proton, every about the entire span of the cosmos works. Temperature, pressure, motion. Astonishing what a marvelous universe he created, and it was very good. Now, the next thing God sees is in Genesis 6 and verse 5. And um, it's, it's kind of stunning. Uh, God, Genesis 6, verse 30, Genesis 1, 31, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. Told me owed. Told me owed. Now, Genesis 6, verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the hearts and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Very good. Very bad. What happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6? Something has changed. And what has obvious, what's bad, is the heart of man. Uh, I find this to be insulting. Um, I think I'm a basically an okay person. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, worse than anything. So the prophets and the Torah both uh, continue to tell me that there's something wrong with my heart. Now, my heart is deceitful. Uh, that means it's lying. My heart lies. Now, since you don't hear my heart, it must be lying to me. And, uh, but that's okay. You have a heart of your own. And your heart's telling you, I'm okay. I'm a nice person. But reality tells you, the scripture tells us that your heart is deceitful. Deceitful. Wait, it gets worse. Desperately wicked. And, just in case you have any questions about it, worse than anything. You can stay away from pig meat, stay away from shrimp, stay away from lobster, and your heart is more wicked than all of the trafe and all the unkosher things and all the unclean things. Here we have unkosher, unclean, my heart, and my heart is worse than anything. That's uh, tough to swallow. And look what Genesis 6 and verse 5, that every imagination of man's heart was only evil and continually evil. That means I don't stop thinking bad stuff. That means I only think bad stuff, and everything I think of is bad stuff. Wow. Wow. Are you sure? <laughs> is that really? That's my heart? Well, no wonder King David cries out, Create me a new heart. Renew enough sprite within me. And there is a way of getting a new heart. It's being called born again. Anyway, what happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6? And to that, we look in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, um, Genesis 2 is a, a replication of the a reordering of the, of the, of the uh, creation story. Uh, Genesis 1 is kind of like a uh, headline, and Genesis 2 is kind of like the details in the article on how this was done. Genesis 3, um, uh, the serpent was more subtle than the beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, um, maybe I should go back up and um, talk about how the Lord God planted a garden out of the ground, 
and he told uh, God, that, uh, the man, uh, that he may eat of all, uh, uh, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 15, and the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone, and he made him a helpmate. And so um, uh, now, before the woman was created, God spoke to the man and said, you can eat of all the trees, that tree you cannot eat. The day you eat of it, you shall die. Now, serpent was more subtle, and he comes to the woman and said to the woman, uh, have you, God told you, you you should not eat of the trees of the garden? The woman says, serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the trees in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat of it, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Where'd that come from? God didn't tell Adam, don't touch. He said, don't eat. Now, somewhere along the line, the woman got the idea that she can't touch the tree. And later on, he seemed to read, uh, uh, now the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely die. Uh, it shall be good and evil. And, and let me go back to verse 6, uh, chapter 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for, for fruit and so on. So apparently she never looked at it and never touched it. Now my suggestion is that this is the beginning of legalism, that God gives us a law, and to stop us from transgressing the law of God, man comes along and puts rules, a fence around the law, to protect us from breaking the law, he gives us a, a, a more stringent rule. God said, don't eat. We said, don't touch, don't look. If you don't look, don't touch, you can't eat. Problem is, is that if you take a peek and nothing happens, so ah, they're not telling me the truth. Then you touch it, nothing happens, and ah, you know what? Nothing's going to happen. And then you eat. And the very law that we made to prevent, keep us and prevent us from breaking or transgressing God's law actually is iniquitous in that it allows us to break God's law. That's either here or there. We don't know. All we know is that God said, don't eat. The woman said, don't touch. Apparently got that from Adam, uh, her husband. And, um, and so the temptation goes on. The woman saw in verse 6 that the tree was good for food. That's just what Achan saw back at, um, in Joshua chapter 7. And, um, and, and the tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof. Now let me, let me I, I skipped over Satan's lie a little bit. He says that if you eat thereof, he, he said that you, you'll, you'll know. Um, serpent said to the woman, thou shalt not surely die. And, um, and God just wants to keep you from that so, so you won't become like God. Um, so uh, the woman took, saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, or the wise. She took the fruit thereof and did eat and also gave it to her husband with her and he did eat. Now, I want to point out something to you that, that her husband was standing with her the whole time. You know, get the idea somehow that Eve went and baked the pie and snuck it across to Adam later and he didn't know what was going on. What was Adam thinking and what was Adam doing? I, I admit that she was the first one to get involved in eating and, he, and, and she was uh, used to, to beguile him. However, 
what was he? How far by was he? He was standing by, uh, watching the whole thing. I guess he was thinking, I don't know what death is all about, but let me watch and see if she dies. And if she falls over and turns tolerable colors and gets real sick and ill and ill and goes to great pain, I won't eat. And you'll have to make me another one. I got another rib here somewhere. And, uh, uh, but, but I don't know what he's doing. He didn't say, stop, don't. He says, let me see what happens. So he, uh, she eats, and, um, and, uh, and, and her husband with her, and he did eat. This is why the scripture says that Adam was, in the trans was first to, to sin because he knew the rule, he knew the law. Eve only heard what Adam said. But God had, God had directly communicated to Adam, said, don't eat or you'll die. And so uh, uh, Adam did not believe and did not trust in the commands of the creator. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked. Um, a little aside, uh, when you have children and grandchildren, you wonder, are they really sinners? Are they capable of understanding crime, sin, guilt? Um, uh, they certainly are sinners, but they don't seem to have much guilt or much shame. And I don't think it's culturally taught. I think it's something within themselves that at some point, the little kid who was running around butt naked all of a sudden is running for blankets and coverings and, and doesn't want to be seen. That's when they're ready to be saved. And different children, different age, some two, three, four, some 15, 18, 20, uh, depending on the culture and environment. But at some point, when they know shame, they know guilt, and they need a savior at that point. Uh, up until then, I think they're innocent. But um, that's either here or there. There's an age of accountability of the innocent. We know that. So um, they, they heard the voice of the Lord God. Oh, and they knew they were naked. The eyes were open. And they sewed fig leaves. They made themselves aprons. And verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And here's where I want the sermon to start. Right here, verse 9. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? The Lord God called on Adam and said, Where are you? And um, the questions that God asks, kind of interesting. We're going to look at this for the next couple of weeks, I think. And uh, we start here in Genesis 3 with the questions that God asks. The, the group of people called the Jehovah Witnesses, I call them the Witnesses Against Jehovah, and they come around, on, usually on Sunday mornings if you're not in church, knocking your door, and they have uh, pamphlets and literature and scriptures that they want to promote and give to you. They have a theology, as we all have theologies, and their, their theology, their theology proper is rather weak. Um, they actually believe that when God said to Adam, where are you? it's evidence that God is not omniscient. Because if God was omniscient, he wouldn't have to ask where Adam was. So in other words, in their theology, if Adam continued to hide, God might never have found him. Uh, can you actually believe that somebody believes this? This is the guy who just said it is good and, so, and put the molecules in place. This is the guy in the beginning who called forth the time-space universe, and said, or let there be light, and there was light. How can we comprehend the marvels of this massive, incredible, creative God, and then turn around and say, he doesn't know where Adam is? 
Hebrews tells us that, that all things are naked and open to the eyes of whom we have to do. You cannot hide from God. You cannot run from God. Achan hides stuff in his bottom. Adam is hiding himself in the, in the weeds. What, what are you, crazy? Come on. God knows where you are. And when he says, where are you? He wants Adam to stop and think, what am I doing? Where am I? Am I in the presence of God? I have the fellowship that I had in the past. Am I in love with him as I was before? Or am I afraid and hiding? The question is to make Adam stop and think, what did you do and where are you? So he calls unto Adam and says, where are you? And by the way, my heart is, is and my imagination is thrilled and my, uh, and my admiration is enlarged when you think of these rescue teams and first responders as they go into various and sundry uh, places where people have been, uh, because of, of enemy or because of disaster, are in a precarious situation. And when you come in as a rescue person, what's the first thing you shout out to them? Where are you? Where are you? See this as a rescue mission from the Creator, seeking his fallen and in devastated position man. He's about to heal, he's about to comfort, he's about to encourage, and he says, he says, where are you? Where are you? And cries out to man, where art thou? Um, and Adam responds, I, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Uh, you notice, um, um, uh, God calls Adam and gives him a simple little question, where are you? And he answers, I'm here. But no, no, no. Um, Adam feels he has to explain the situation. It's interesting how my talk to my grandchildren. Did you hit your sister? Well, you see, <laughs> let me explain. I had this toy, and yeah, yeah, all right. Oh, well, then maybe I might have pushed her. I don't know. But I was hitting her back. And so uh, did I tell you never to hit? Never mind. All right, so here we are. Adam's explaining things to God. And he said, who told you you were naked? Like, God doesn't know. Um, look at the results of the guilt and the shame that comes from eating the tree. I forbid you to eat, and this is what happens when you eat. You became a sinner, and now you're ashamed. And so, uh, did you eat uh, of the tree that I commanded you should not eat? Now, I, as a professor at the Institute of Jewish Studies, give a lot of questions and tests, and sometimes they give a true-false test. Uh, is this statement true or is this statement false? Uh, there's, there's short essay questions, there's multiple-choice questions, all kinds of ways of asking questions to determine what the person knows. Uh, Adam was asked a simple true and false question. Hast thou eaten of the tree Wherein thou has told you not that I told you not to eat. Well, Adam opted for a short essay answer. He gave a short true or false. Did you eat? Well, you see, let me explain here. Um, uh, uh, the woman, <laughs> which you gave me, by the way, <laughs> oh, oh, blaming God for circumstances and situation. If you hadn't made me thus, if you hadn't done this, if you hadn't done that, then I wouldn't. Well, no, it's never God's fault. It's never God's fault at all, ever. Uh, the woman you gave me a couple uh, hours ago, it was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Wow, wow, I have companionship now. Perfect. 
And now all of a sudden, you know that lady you gave me, you know? Uh, Adam, Adam, Adam. But isn't he truly our father? And doesn't that heart beats inside of every one of us to deny, to blame, to uh, shift what's happened? And the woman you gave me, uh, she gave me. It's her fault. Oh, yeah, I might have had a bite later on, but uh, after all that you did and she did, what do you expect? I'm not at fault for this. Well, God follows the rabbit trail and says to the woman, what is this that thou hast done? Simple question. Asking for a short essay answer, what did you do? And the woman answered, the serpent. Wait a second, wait a second. I didn't ask you what he did. I asked you what you did. And she comes back with, well, the serpent, he beguiled me, and I did eat. Finally, we get the confession. She blames the devil. God, Adam blames God and, and Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. Nobody's taking responsibilities. If I shared this story before, I apologize, but I just uh, it, it, it's, um, it's something I need to rehearse in my head frequently. Um, my habit is when I go to restaurants is to ask waitresses and waiters uh, if they have a prayer request. And then I try to pray with them before I eat and so on. And um, years ago at one of these uh, places I was asking for a prayer request, I got a, I, a waitress uh, told me about uh, a situation in her neighborhood where a lot of kids were doing drugs right in front of her home and she was afraid of coming back and forth under the street lamp and coming home. And I... Uh, not just praying about it, I said, you know, I have, a, I have a son who might be able to help you out here. I think I said my son Benjamin, who's the, now the pastor of, um, of um, Orchard Hills Bible Church in, in Pennsylvania, and I think he plays guitar, he can start up talk to these kids, and Ben was working and ministering, he couldn't go. So I think I said, send Danny. And Danny also was a minister out in Minnesota, and he uh, he plays guitar, and he could start a youth group up, and uh, he couldn't go. So I figured, well, that's it, because I can't send Joshua, because old Joshua's the pastor of the Albion Bible Church now, and could play guitar. He's more likely to be doing drugs with the kids in the corner by himself already. I didn't send him. So uh, Joshua volunteers. I said, oh, well, all right. Uh, and uh, so Joshua ends up talking to the kids and starts a youth group, which actually grew to become a church Praise God, hallelujah. But in the process, Joshua's preaching. Joshua was, didn't have his GED, hasn't graduated high school, uh, uh, I don't know, and he's preaching. I say to him, what, what, what could you be preaching? He said, well, my first sermon was the three things I learned from my dad. Well, that sounds good. And uh, what are the three things you learned from your dad? Well, the first one was listen to your mother. It's important. And he said, uh, my mom never wants anything that's bad for me. And even today, if I listen to my mother, I'll be okay. Okay, Josh, you can believe that. Second thing he said was that um, it's always easier to get forgiveness than permission. What? Did I teach that? He said, yeah. And he found the verse for it. I have no idea. The third thing is really important, and this is what I want you to focus on. He said, my dad always taught me to take responsibilities for your own mistakes. Don't blame anybody else. I learned this when I, before I even got saved. I was playing basketball with a bunch of kids in a coffee house. They were all Christian kids, and I wasn't. And, and um, the game wasn't going really well. 
and I told you I'm not very good at, at, at sports, and, uh, and every time I missed a shot, I'd yell I was fouled, even if the defenseman was far away. Uh, if I knocked the ball out of bounds, I blamed my teammate for not throwing it to me when I was ready for it, didn't pass it properly. Uh, the lighting was bad, the rim was off, and the ball was underinflated. Everything was wrong except me. And I'm spooling out all this negativity, blaming everybody, and everybody's getting hostile and getting angrier, and the entire mood is, uh, the game is getting rather nasty. And one kid blows a whistle. I said, hey, we got to take a couple minutes off because this is getting hostile and it's not pretty. We might break it to a fist fight, which is fine with me because I do a lot better in a fight than I would uh, shooting baskets. And, uh, but anyway, they called a, a, a timeout. I was sitting on a bench cooling off, and this young fellow, I was 22 years old, and this kid was 17 and a half. And a 17 and a half kid, year old kid sits down next to me on the bench, and he starts to say, uh, you know what your trouble is? What, <laughs> you just graduated from Dale Carney's school on how to win and influence people? Come on, you don't, you don't talk to me like that. I'm a man, you're a kid, back off. I didn't say that because he was 6'3". So I figured I'd, I'd give him a little slack. And, uh, and he, he says, your problem is that you got guilt up to here. You're filled with guilt. And I said, yeah, I know about guilt, I'm Jewish. And uh, the complex of being blamed and blaming others. Uh, and he said, uh, he said and, and almost before I asked the question, yeah, well, what about it or what about you? He says, me, he says, I confess my sins to God. As soon as I do something wrong, I tell God and ask for forgiveness. And I got a clean slate. I have an empty spot where you can put the blame. So I blame, I put it on God. I'm forgiven. So now when I make a mistake, I can examine it and improve on it. Huh? See, if I miss a shot, I don't blame anybody else. I stop and think, was I focused on the rim or they let the defenseman distract me? Was I in my rhythm? Did I get my jump? Was my form right? Because I can change and improve that. If I knocked the ball about, was I anticipating the pass? Was I on the balls of my feet? Was I looking for things? Was I anticipation? Was I looking ahead? And all of a sudden, I click, wow, wow. I can become a better basketball player just by thinking. If I messed up, I can change. If it's my mother's fault, i got to wait a long time before she straightens out. If it's the government's fault, I may never straighten out. If I'm blaming everybody and anybody but me, I can't do a thing to get better. No wonder everything's so miserable and I'm blaming everybody. But if I can say, wow, Mitch, what did you do? What should you have done? What can you do about it? I can start becoming better right now. And thankfully, the Lord, I taught that to my children and they're preaching it to others. And I need to learn it right now again. Look at Adam blaming God, blaming Eve. Look at Eve blaming the devil, not taking responsibility for their own actions and their own activities. Uh, so let's move on. Um, uh, the Lord said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, you're cursed thou above all cattle and above every beast of the field, upon the belly uh, thou shalt go, and thou shalt eat of the, all the days of thy life of dust, and I'll put enmity between thy woman and the woman and the seed and her seed, and she'll bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And uh, we're going to focus on Genesis 3.15 for a moment or two. 
Um, this uh, Proto-Evangelion, it's called, uh, this unusual, marvelous verse where a seed uh, of a woman, and God's going to bring a woman a seed, and this seed eventually is going to crush the head of the devil, the adversary, the serpent, uh, looking for the seed. Uh, they were kicked out of the garden, and uh, God gave them uh, uh, coats uh, made from calves and animal sacrifice, and Lord and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she brought forth a child, and the child she brought forth was Cain. And she said, "I brought a man child." She thought that Cain was the promised seed, the word Messiah, the Anointed One. She thought it was it was Cain, but Cain turns out to be a murderer, and the real seed was probably Abel, but Cain slew his brother Abel, and uh, and Seth is born, and Seth produces the godly line. And uh, before we go any further, let me, let me, let me show you something that's kind of neat. Um, I don't know if you ever saw this before. Now it's not working. I don't know why. Oh, because i got to turn it on. How's that? Here's Adam. I left the vowel points out because that's the way it is in Torah. And uh, that's it in English. And Adam means man. The next child in, this, uh, in the line is Seth. And Seth is, uh, means appointed. Uh, uh, Enosh or Anash is, uh, means mortal. Kanan, Kinan, means sorrow. It's appointed unto mortal man's sorrow. Mahalel, Mahalalel, Lael, means the blessed God. The blessed God. Yared shall come down. Enoch, teaching Methuselah, his death shall bring, Meth's death, Methuselah, his death shall bring Lamech, the, the despairing, Noah is comfort or hope. That's uh, the first, uh, uh, what is that, nine? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I lost one, two, three, four, five, six, ten, ten. Uh, man, to point out man moral sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death, the blessed man's death, uh, the blessed God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort. How can you know any Hebrew? I brought this to rabbis. They say, well, yeah, you can make that point. Duh! Well, yeah, it might be. Yeah, I, I see it. Yeah, it's there. So what? What do you mean, so what? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's appointed on man mortal sorrow, uh, but the blessed God will come down teaching that his, the blessed God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort. Now, uh, is, that, is that very clear? Not, not precisely, not ex exactly, uh, but it's certainly evidential and needs to be studied and and. and looked at, I, I always love when people tell me, you know, if Jesus was the Messiah, why didn't God just tell us his name was Jesus? Because then everybody would name their children Jesus. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there's enough evidence. He's born in Bethlehem, where he was born, how he lived, how he died, etc., uh, etc., et the prophet like unto Moses. Who is his son that we're to look forward to in his coming? Uh, it, it, Seth was the godly line. 
And we come down from Seth, we come to a man named Terach. Now Terach, interestingly, purposed in his heart to take his family to go to the promised land. He was going to go to Jerusalem. That was his heart to do. But Terah got to Haran, found a nice religion there, wouldn't leave the riverside, and stayed by the river, and the scripture said that Terah died in Haran. But then God raised up another child, a son of, Ab of, of Terah, a man named Abraham. And Abraham, in him is the seed called, and Abraham is the blessing to all the nations. And anybody who blesses Abraham shall be blessed, and blessing his seed. And uh, he is the heir apparent. Abraham had a child called Ishmael, but Ishmael's not the son of the promise. God said Abraham gave up waiting for Sarah, and Sarah is beyond the age of childbearing, so he had a wife by Hagar. And God said to Abraham, uh, no, Sarah is going to produce the child. Abraham said to God, uh, to, uh, to God oh God, it would Ishmael would live before thee, but that's not God, God's plan. And Sarah uh, was restored to youth, youth, the ability to have children, Abraham was given restoration, the ability to have children, and a miracle child was born called Isaac. It's almost funny, and Sarah calls him laughter, and we'll talk about that someday. We'll get there, because one of the questions God asks is, where is Sarah, thy wife? So hang on. That'll be probably September or something like that. But we'll, get, we'll get there, God willing. So um, uh, where is Sarah? So Sarah produces uh, Isaac. Isaac has uh, for, praise for his wife, Rivka. Rivka is, uh, is barren, but God restores to her her ability to have a child, and she has twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, uh, God said to Jacob, Jacob, I love Esau, I've hated. Before they were all of them right or wrong, in their womb, they were hated. How is Esau hated? God withheld his best love from him, and that Esau was born strong, strapping, father's son, proud, a muscular, healthy kid. Who would you want? To, but but and we don't want to be Esau. But who did God love? He showed his love upon Jacob. Jacob was born probably a, a mama's boy, sickly child, not able to do the things that his father would want his child to do, and a little bit of a deceiver. Uh, Jack's who Jacob was. But in Jacob is the seed called. Jacob has 12 sons. And uh, you'd think the child is going to be able to Joseph because of all that he accomplished. But Joseph is just a picture of the abundant life that we have on the physical blessings. There's a spiritual blessing, and that's in Judah. Scripture says that in Judah, uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah till Shiloh comes. And Judah is going to be in the land, the southern kingdom, after Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the Hanukkah miracle. The Jewish people were in charge of their own land at the time that the Messiah was born 400 years later from the Hanukkah incident, 187 years from the Hanukkah incident. And so uh, uh, finally, uh, we, we, we go from Judah, we go to David, and David's son Solomon, and Solomon on down to follow the genealogical record, and there from the virgin birth was our Messiah Yeshua. Born of a virgin. Why? Why born of a virgin? Because every man that produces seed, it produces a child with the heart of Adam. And so we cannot have a sacrifice of a perfect person if the person himself needs a savior. So every child born of Adam's seed is born with Adam's sin. But the woman's seed is untainted. And so we have to have a man born, a child born, without the agency of a man. 
And so we have that which is found in the ears of the Ruach HaKadosh and this miraculous birth of a Messiah Yeshua. And a Messiah Yeshua set his face like a flint and went to Calvary. He came into his own, his own received an op, his own received him to them, he gave the authority to become the children of God. And that Messiah was sacrificed according to the scriptures, was raised up, Hosea chapter 5 in the Psalms, on the third day, and, um, and therein is the unction of our salvation, the seed of a woman, the seed of a woman. It starts back in Genesis, and I, I asked the rabbis, what, what happened? And um, rabbinically, they tell me that man is basically neutral, basically neutral. Uh, we have a good inclination, and we have an evil inclination, a yetatov and a yetzharah. And uh, I was speaking to a friend of mine named Emmanuel, who worked in the bookstore up in the Chabad house in uh, um, an Ocean Parkway, um, 770 Eastern Parkway in uh, Brooklyn, in um, um, what's the name of that neighborhood where the, the Voyager Center is? I can't think of the name of the neighborhood in Brooklyn. That's okay. And, uh, and he's, would uh, buzz me in and we sit and we talk for hours. And after they discovered him talking to me, uh, they shipped him out in what I call the um, uh, witness protection plan. They soon sent him somewhere else so he couldn't talk to me anymore. But while Emmanuel and I were still talking and having wonderful times of fellowship, we got into a discussion regarding this Yates Hara versus Yates Tov, the good inclination versus the evil inclination. And we have tomes of literature, French, Hebrew, Latin, Spanish, mean, a massive library at the Lubavitcher Foundation there. And those uh, who Rabbi Schneerson was the rabbi. And, um, and looking through all these books, we looked up the two inclinations. And for the good inclination, we found, or for the bad inclination, we found Torah's passages. The Torah talks about it. Genesis 6. Every imagination, only evil, always evil, continuing. The prophets talk about it. Uh, the heart, heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. The writings talk about it. As the sparks fly upward, so is man. And it goes on to do evil. It goes on and on. The evil inclination is taught in the Bible, taught in God's word. Torah, Nevaim, Ketuvim testify repeatedly to the evil inclination of man, and it starts. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, when man disobeyed God and became a sinner and reproduced after his own kind, and each one of us. Scripture says, for over as an Adam, all die, and death pass upon all men for all have sinned. For wherefore, by one man sin in the world, death by sin, and death pass upon all men, for all have sinned. Done. Done. Well, what about the, that, 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 that good inclination? Where do we get that idea from? We looked it up, and not one verse of Scripture talks about the good inclination. Rabbi so-and-so says, and this class of so-and-so, and the school of so-and-so, hundreds of references, all of them to other rabbis. The Bible doesn't teach a good inclination. Religion teaches a good inclination. Religion tells you you can do better, try harder, do a better job. And the fact is that that's not the way it works at all. I just uh, came, uh, it wasn't my family, but the lady I stay with, uh, Jamie, met her, her and her husband, her family came over yesterday and we had a marvelous time laughing and giggling. And uh, the patriarch of the family is a woman named Geraldine, who used to live on Crescent Road, a beautiful home there. And uh, Geraldine 
and I had a conversation years ago, and I told it a stupid story, and I love stupid stories. Maybe I'm stupid, I don't know. But, um, and the story is about a man who uh, lived in the back of a graveyard over to the corner of one, and, and he was a drunk, hopelessly spending his, his paycheck every week on his drinking, buying for everybody and picking up the tab. And, and he'd come home and she'd have to take in laundry and scrub floors and to make ends meet because he was a drunk. Not, not a mean drunk, but a drunk just the same. So she thought she'd teach him a lesson. And one day, back by the graveyard on the shortcut to their home, she dug a grave right on the path that he would fall in that grave, and she figured that would teach him not to drink anymore, he'll learn. Well, unfortunately, some well-meaning passerbyer was walking innocently by, and he stumbles into the grave. Whoa! And we're talking about a six-foot-high thing here. And, uh, well, he does what anybody would do. He tries to <laughs> run and jump, but you can't get that much of a speed up, and he can't jump his way out. He tried wedging himself and climbing out and tried clawing out and he tried all kinds of ways of getting out and he said, you know what, this ain't working. So he put his hat down over his head, lies down, sits down in the corner and just said, I'm just gonna go to sleep and hopefully tomorrow morning somebody comes by and finds me and I can get out of here. Nobody's in shouting distance and so he goes to sleep. Well, here comes our happy drunk, do, 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 and he falls into the pit and he climbs out can't, tries to jump out, can't, tries to wedge his way out, can't. But he, his activity, he stirs uh, awake his fellow compadre there, and, and he says, you'll never get out of here. But he did. And uh, what happened was he was so scared, his motivation was increased. It's not true. Not true. Because if you can't get out, you can't get out. And no matter how motivated you are, you can't get out. Now, the religions of the world will come by and say, it's okay, not so bad. Make the best of the situation. We'll give you things you can do in the pit to make you feel better about the fact that you can't get out. Or they'll encourage you to jump higher, try harder, uh, yell for help louder. They'll give you all kinds of ways you can get out of the pit, but you can't get out. You are in place in a pit of sin, caused by your nature, and you cannot ever, ever escape. But our Messiah Yeshua, when he comes down into the pit, puts you up on his shoulders and gets you out through his own sacrifice on your behalf. And you can work and strive and try. You can deny that you're in the pit. You can pretend that you're not that, that, that's not that bad. Or you can say, thank you, God for forgiving me in the base of Messiah Yeshua. Let's pray. Father of God, we, uh, we kind of laugh and giggle as we see our nature and our neighbors and our family and our forefathers and our ancestors hiding from you, blaming you, blaming the devil, denying self-incrimination, uh, planning uh, all kinds of rules and laws around the tree. And Father, we have to confess that we ourselves did it and you died for it. And now, Father, we ask that these folks here might recognize the truth of the gospel in the scriptures, believe, and be saved. Create a new heart in us. Renew in us an upright spirit 
so we can have an inclination that's turned to God and obeys you. We ask that uh, you might bless them and keep them, make your face shine upon them, be gracious unto them, lift up the count upon them, and grant you their peace. Baruch Hashem.